everybody. Welcome to uh, the class. We are uh, we're still concentrating on our look at Romans. We haven't uh, seen. <laughs> Uh, the verses of Romans uh, in a consistent way in a while because we've been kind of going into different areas and looking at things that relate to the overall study and today is going to be no different and then I believe in the next if if we can get through everything today on this uh, we will begin again to go into Romans chapter 8 the place that kind of spurred our deviation from those particular verses to go into chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Romans and then the places we've been. But I think if we concentrate on where we're going to be today and what we're going to look at today, it's going to be very helpful. Maybe a little controversial for some. But I think very helpful for us to consider it in the light of things that we're going to look at in Romans 8 as we proceed. Um, and it, it's found in John chapter 3. There's a, a particular part of these, uh, these verses that we're going to read that I have and others have, I believe, misused, mishandled, misappropriated. And misapplied. And by misapplication, by misapplied, I mean it has been applied to the wrong thing, to the wrong person. And the reason it has been done is because we've taken this particular verse that we'll point out out of its original God-ordained context. And we have applied it to something else. And not meaning to do harm, but I believe in doing so we have done harm. And we will look at that as we go. It's a very familiar verse and we've all heard it and we've all heard the way it's been applied to, to man. And I believe we have heard it misapplied, misappropriated. And it has caused a great deal of hurt, of anxiety in many believers. And I want to look at it today. And what I want to do is look at it in the context in which it is found in the scripture so that we can see that we do not need to remove it from its original place for it to have a tremendous weight to it, for its beauty to be truly understood. In fact, if you understand it in the true context in which it is found, where God meant for it to be written and recorded, I think it proves itself so much more beautiful when we see it where it is meant to be. So let's go to John chapter 3, and again, it may not seem like it will, but I promise you, these verses will come back uh, 
during the study when we get back into Romans chapter 8 because then we'll have to look at some other things about being dead to uh, the law, being a debtor not to the flesh but to the spirit. And this has a great deal to do with that if we'll just understand it in the context in which it is found. So let's go to... Um, Yeah, let's go into John chapter 3, verse 22. And, I mean, again, I hate to even do that because there's such, I mean, John 3 is such a beautiful thing. But just keep in mind, all of this is in the context of this chapter. But in verse 22, we will begin. After these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea, and there he tarried with them and baptized. And John also was baptizing in Anon near to Salem. Because there was much water there and they came and were baptized. For John was not yet cast into prison. Now here comes the controversy. Here comes the controversy. Here comes the questions. And this begins to set the scene and the context in which his statement, this particular verse that we're talking about, is, is this statement is made. There arose a question between some of John's disciples, this is verse 25, and the Jews about purifying. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom you bared witness. Behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. Now, listen to that. Listen to that phrase. I'm going to write it. And all men come to him. Now, this is not actually there, so you can just say all come to him. This is in italics in most Bibles, I would suspect, but it doesn't take away from it. But all men, all come to him. And what a beautiful thing this is. This statement right here sets the stage for everything that John is about to say. For his response is going to be based upon this beautiful statement uh, concerning Jesus baptizing also. John's baptism is being overlooked a little, uh, overshadowed by the baptism of Jesus. Now, look how... It's worded. So we're going to look at just a moment. Look how it's worded because this is going to make us examine something. The man who you were with beyond Jordan. Now he's talking about when he baptized Jesus in the Jordan. And the spirit come upon him. And the father spoke and says, this is my beloved one in whom I am well pleased. 
and even other translations will be like he's speaking to his own, God is speaking to Jesus Christ himself, not to the whole crowd, but just to Christ and say, you are the one in whom I have always been delighting. You are the one who's always been the, the, the source of my delight and my pleasure fulfilled in you. What a statement concerning this Jesus. And they ask him and they, they, they come to him with, with concern and say it this way. The one that was with you beyond Jordan, the one that you gave witness to, or what is another word? The one you testified of. What was that testimony? Behold. Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. Behold the end of your institution. Behold the end of your sacrifices. Behold God's lamb for final redemption, for final salvation, for real and true internal change who takes away the sin. No other sacrifice could do it. Behold, here is the culmination of it all. There's the testimony that John gave of this one. Now, this one is now baptizing and they say to John, all come to him. Now, if John was in a situation where some people would look at this and think, here's one ministry up against another ministry now. Here's two guys baptizing in the water and people are coming and you want to say, well, he's just taking your ministry. He's, you, we've got to do something. We've got to market better. We've got to reach out better. We've got to evangelize more so that he can't get all our people because they're all coming to him. And John's response is not based upon such trivial things as it would be for most because we have to understand the context of this and understand that for which John stood, that office that John had at this moment in time, what he existed for, why he came to understand all of these things, even the verse we're going to look at particularly. But this is setting a context. Look, all men are coming to him. And John doesn't say, oh, we've got to do something about this. No, no. John's response is based upon the office he understood that he possessed, the office he knew he had given of God. Let's read something concerning that. Um, office, what John stood for. Matthew chapter, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 11. Verse 13, we'll just read these verses. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, not until Jesus, but until John. What does that mean? The prophets and the law prophesied, gave testimony, sp spoke beyond themselves concerning something yet to be, something yet to come until John came. Because in John we have a picture of the culminating witness 
the final finger that will point to this Lamb of God, the one ordained, the one sent by God, the one of whom the law and the prophets testified, and he will give an one final point, one final declaration and witness, this is him. Because John is now, his office is the one that culminates their testimony of this one. And then he goes on and Jesus says, and if you will receive it, this is Elias, which was to come. He that hath an ear, to hear, let him hear. Now, that takes us even some, somewhere else. This is the Elijah that was to come. This is him that was to come. Now, let's go into Malachi chapter 4, and this will further elaborate on what John was sent to do. Malachi Four, verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall, listen to this phrase, we've heard it forever, misunderstood it, of course. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. This is Elijah. This is John the Baptist, the one the law and the prophesied, prophesied until this one, John. And if you can hear this, he is the Elijah that was sent. What was Elijah sent to do? To turn the hearts of the fathers unto the children and to the, ch the hearts of the children unto the fathers. Now, what does that mean? Again, this sets a picture, sets a stage, contextualizes the statements that we're going to read and shows the beautiful weight of these statements. Why it's tremendous all by itself, exactly where it's intended to be. We don't need to move it to make it mean something. We don't need to apply it to ourselves for it to be a valid scripture or statement. John makes the declaration that he makes based upon the office that he had. His response to this great declaration by his disciples is based upon the office that he is exercising and executing given of God. And he understood it. Yes, in prison there was a moment of doubt, but he ultimately understood his place, his office, his ministry. And it was to give testimony of this great one that God had chosen before. Because he will even say, this one who's coming after me, he was chosen and preferred before me. He's always been the intended one. He's always been the one this was about, not me. And we're going to talk about that as we go in these verses. But look at his office. Now... Elijah's ministry in this time of his being sent by God before that great and terrible day was to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Now, to understand that, we go to chapter 13 of Acts. Now, 
I know what has been done with that verse, and we take it today, just like we do so many other verses, and we bring it into this day and time. And so we're saying, you have spiritual fathers, and then they're spiritual children, and the whole work of God is to bring the hearts of the fathers and the children together so that the fathers can teach these spiritual young youngsters and they can all you know have a spiritual fathers and they will be their heads and they will respect and give credence to their spiritual fathers and that's become just such a way to manipulate people for so many years i was in that for a long period of time before seeing christ it was the whole thing about spiritual fatherhood and spiritual sons and now you have armor bearers who follow the preacher, follow the bishop around and carry their bags and carry their coats. That's what it's downgraded to because we just take these things and do whatever we want to with them. What is this particular verse speaking about? Turning the hearts of the fathers to the children. It's about bringing the fathers and their children into, an, into a final you harmonious agreement with one another in that what the father said was coming. Remember, has spoken unto the fathers by the prophets. God spoke by the prophets to the fathers and the fathers passed it on to the children and said, this, the Messiah is coming. Salvation is coming. All of this is coming. The promises of God and the blessings of God are, are imminent. In their coming. So to understand what he came to do was this. Look at look at this. Uh, chapter thirteen of Acts. It even starts with. I mean, it, it, it's, it's a long chapter. We're not going to get into the whole of this because, I mean, he's, he's preaching here. Paul is preaching to them and declaring Christ to them and showing how all of these things throughout the scripture were set up. And look at what he says. I'll just start in verse 21 of chapter 13 because he goes through a bunch of this. But, and afterward they desired a king and God gave them Saul, the son of Sis, and a man of the tribe of Benjamin by the space of 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king. Uh... To whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. There's part of it. Of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. Now, that's going to take us back into Luke with a man named Simeon and a, and a woman I think her name's Elizabeth, the, the prophetess Elizabeth, both coming to the temple and Jesus comes in. And Simeon says God had given him a promise that 
he would not taste death until he had saw the Lord's Christ and the salvation of Israel come. And when he sees this one, he says, your servant can depart in peace because mine eyes have seen your salvation. It's particularly the same thing as we're seeing happening here with John the Baptist. And then she comes in and sees him and she goes out into the streets of Jerusalem and begins to declare him to all of those who's, who had hope for salvation to come. Declaring him to be their hope fulfilled. Same thing here. But look at what he goes on. Paul goes on to, to, to preach. Of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. When John, speaking of John the Baptist, had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John fulfilled his course, he said, Whom think ye that I am? I am not he. Look at what he's saying happened to John in this very discourse that we're going to talk about. He fulfilled his course. This is his purpose, his ministry being exercised fully. And this is the full course of his ministry. Look, he said, whom do you think I am? I'm not he. Behold, there cometh one after me whose shoes of his feet I am not even worthy to loose men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. For they that dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voice of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause of death in him, yet desire they Pilate that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. But God raised him from the dead. And he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. And listen to this. And we declare unto you the gospel, the glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto who? Our fathers, the fathers. God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus again, as it is written in the second psalm, Thou art my son this day, have I begotten thee. What does this have to do with anything? John, as this fulfillment not only of the prophecy of the law and the prophets but as the Elijah that was sent to come to bring the hearts of the fathers and the children together that's what Paul is speaking of here in Acts 13. Now the children has received in Christ the risen one the very thing that the father said was going to come and was going to be fulfilled by God. Meaning they now, the children, realized the fathers were not lying in that the father's declaration of a coming fulfillment has been fulfilled in the person of this Christ that God has raised. The one that John testified of and gave a final amen to who he is. Behold, I am not him he is the one preferred before me. I'm not even worthy to lace his shoes. Because in John, we're seeing the whole of the testimony. And this is the beauty of what we're reading in John chapter 3. The whole of it. 
pointing to the fulfillment, the final oration or the final arbiter of that testimony points to him and says, behold, here he is. And when his disciples come to him and say, they're all coming to him. All men come to him. It's as if with all of this in mind that we've been reading about his office, the reason he existed, the reason he was given of God this ministry. John didn't say, oh man, we've got to really re-examine our ministerial organizational chart here. We've got to figure out how to market ourselves so he doesn't take all our people. No, basically he's saying, that's what it was all about. This is the reason I exist. This is my purpose for being on this earth right now. Listen to what he says. Because he understood his office. He understood what he was supposed to do. Verse 27, here, here's, here's his answer. A man cannot receive anything except to be given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness. I said I am not the Christ. But that I am sent before him. I've told you I'm not the one you sh that, that was going to fulfill the promise. I was sent to pave the way. I was sent to declare him. I was sent to give final witness of his coming. To call all men to repentance. What is that about? Right here. So that all men would come to him. I have been given my place by heaven. I did not take this unto myself. And if God has seen fit that this is the moment in time where all men now come to this one that I pointed to and said, behold the Lamb of God, then this is the moment given of heaven for him to come forth in the grandeur of his own messianic person and declare who he is in the midst of his people to whom he has now come. For he came to his own and his own received him not. He now given of God this is the moment in time given of God that he would stand in the midst of his possession and his people and say, Behold, I am. John does not lament that. John is rejoicing over it. Because he sees that now is the moment now is the time fulfilled that the Father would draw all men to this one. Now, let's go on in what he says here in verse 29. Because this is a beautiful picture that we're going to spend some time on. Verse 29 says this. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom 
who standeth and heareth him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This, my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. Look at that answer. Look at that answer, knowing why he existed, knowing the purpose, knowing, again, standing in the place of the very law and the prophets that testified. And now he stands there as their final declaration, their final voice of testimony toward this one. And he says, I'm not the groom. God has sent the bridegroom now to receive his bride. The bride has never belonged to me. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The bride belongs to the one that she's intended to marry. The bride belongs to the one she was, that was chosen for her hand to be joined to and for them to become one. That's who the bride belongs to and I'm not him. But what does he call himself in the midst of all of that? He calls himself the friend of the bridegroom. Now the office of the friend of the bridegroom, and it was not just, hey buddy, let's go have a beer. It was an office. The friend of the bridegroom, when it came to marriage time, when it came to for this arrangement to come to fruition and the joining to actually happen, there was an office that this friend of the bridegroom actually held in this day and time. The office of the friend of the bridegroom, and I'll say it that way because there was a great responsibility. Um, and in this again, when he speaks of himself as the bridegroom's friend, he's exposing the fact that all men are coming to him instead of John. As the mere, as the true natural, God ordained next step, as the natural order of the thing. That's how it was ordered of God to be. That's heaven's design. And it is. From the first to the second, from natural to spiritual, from the law to Christ, from the testimony to the man of whom that testimony gave witness. That's the order. That's the natural order. And John understood that. And he understood that to be his place. Now, John introduced again himself as the friend of the bridegroom. What is the friend of the bridegroom? In this day and time, here's what happened. The friend of the bridegroom had a great deal to do with the marriage actually taking place. Because the friend of the bridegroom actually facilitated the bringing together of the two intendees, the one intended to be married to the other. The friend of the bridegroom on behalf of the groom would woo the bride and say, you must come to this one. He would negotiate the joining of the two. 
It was his job to basically negotiate the match and negotiate the actual joining of the bride and the bridegroom. And in some of the commentaries that I asked or that I looked at, some of those commentaries said that the friend of the bridegroom actually was the one that made, um, oh, what is it? Uh, that actually asked or proposed on behalf of the groom. And again, he does this in his office as the culmination of the law and the prophets. This groom, when he hears, I mean, and this is in the midst of all of the concern and all of the the questionings of his disciples and say, hey, what are we going to do? They're all coming to him now. You point him out and they're all going to him. He's not saying, oh gosh. No, he's saying this is what it was all about. I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. I've done my part. I have negotiated the the joining together of the bride and the bridegroom. Now I stand back and I hear the voice of the groom calling his bride and saying, come unto me. And my joy is fulfilled. My purpose for existing is realized. I need nothing else but to hear his voice calling out to the one that I have that I have negotiated his joining to and I step back and my time is over. My reason is gone. I no longer need to be in this picture. The bridegroom and the bride have now, the time is for them to be joined together and for the friend of the groom to exist in that picture any longer as a third wheel is weird and is not right. Time for that one to be removed and for the groom to come in and take the hand of his bride and they become one. The intended parties join together. That's what this was all about. I've negotiated as much as possible. My, I have called them to repent. I've called them to come to this kingdom. I've called them to come to this one. And I've introduced him. Now, they come to him as God intended. And my joy, my purpose is fulfilled. And these last words of John concerning that are fitting to close his work and his ministry. These are the fitting last words of what he stood for, the law and the prophets, that whole testimony. No longer necessary. For he has come. And I hear his voice calling to his bride and those that will hear his voice shall live and be joined to him and become one, become married to this man.
to this perfect man, to the man that God intended for them to be married to. And in that, my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. Now, here's the verse. Here's the verse that we have taken out of this beautiful context and we have applied it to ourselves. And what have we done to it? Here's the verse. He must increase. This is right after he says, the bridegroom is the one to whom the bride belongs. The friend of the bridegroom stands and hears him and he rejoices because of the bridegroom's voice and my joy is therefore fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. Look at it in that context and tell me it's not beautiful already. It doesn't need to be removed from that place and applied to us. We've done that to our own detriment and we've added with that to our own anxiety of trying to measure up. And now this is, just becomes another measuring stick with which we attempt to measure the validity of our spiritual existence. We try to measure how spiritual we are by saying these very words. He must increase, I must decrease. And what does that become? It's a way for us to assess ourselves now and say, well, I wonder if I'm decreasing enough. And He must not be increasing enough. Something's wrong. There's, There's something that's got to happen to make this thing actually take place because we assess ourselves and our actions and our attitudes and our whatever. And we begin to now question everything. And this has become a leading verse that has been used for that. When this verse was never meant to do that. This verse never had you or me in view. This verse is the declaration of one who is the culmination of an entire age of testimony in the light of the presence of the one of whom that age testified and saying his increase is my immediate departure. His presence means I am done. That's what it's about. The word increase actually means to have, been, have grown to its extreme limit and to achieve the highest position or the greatest authority. Look at that. What has greater authority? The picture or the person? The man testified of or the one of whom that testimony or the testimony or the one of whom that testimony was given? The person, the object, the finality, the full substance of that testimony. What's greater? What has greater authority? What has greater authority? That's what his increase means. His authority has come. His presence substantiates everything that I have been saying. Everything the law and the prophets said would come. He is come. And his presence, his increase, the coming of this one decreases any right that I have to linger about and to stay. Any placement that I have of authority is now gone 
in the presence of this one because he's the one who fulfills my purpose for existing as a ministry, as a testimony. I must decrease in the light and presence of his increase, his coming, his authority now present, his very being now come, his voice crying out to his bride. There's no reason for me to linger about. There is no place for me now. That's what it's about. It's not a way for us to look at ourselves and say, is he increasing enough? Am I decreasing enough? Because every person's going to have a different view of that. And everybody's going to be on that same ride. And it's not a fun ride to be on. <coughs> I mean, it's going to run the gamut from drinking and smoking to watching movies to spending time with your children. And you're going to be saying, am I spending too much time with my kids? Am I watching too much movie? What is my motive for watching that, watching that movie? What is my reasoning for going to work? Should I quit my job? And look, look at what we do. You want to talk about self? You want to talk about how subtle those things can come in? How about the subtlety of us examining ourselves to try to find some morsel of righteousness in anything that we are? That's what we've done with this verse. And that was never the reason this verse was written, it was written in the light of the coming of the end of this man's promise, at the end of this man's testimony, the coming of the one he could point to and say, here he is. It is spoken in the light of the friend of the bridegroom saying, finally, their hands have joined. He has come. The negotiation that I was intended for has come to its conclusion. Now his voice is calling to his bride. My voice no longer need, is needed. Do you hear that? There's a beautiful picture. A beautiful picture. And if we see it in the context in which it exists the way God intended for it to be. The, the, the context it was originally written in is so beautiful. Then after that verse, he continues and John says, He that cometh from above is above all. He's preeminent. He that is, listen to this, because he's now going to speak concerning himself, his ministry, that which he stood for, the testimony he stood for. He's going to give it some, he's going to uh, define it in a way. Up against the greater, up against the one from above, up against the one whose increase has brought his decrease. Look, he that comes from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthy and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. Listen to that. 
as great as the testimony was, as great as John's ministry was, as great as that baptized, baptism was, John would plainly say, I baptized with water. My testimony is, is earthly at best, and I, I speak from an earthly standpoint. I can't speak but earthly words, and I can't use but earthly things. I baptize with water, but this one who's coming after me, who was preferred before me, meaning he was the intention of it all, I just came to pave the way. And he that comes after me baptize you with spirit, not earthly thing, but a spiritual baptism, a true baptism that brings about an internal change. I can't do that. My ministry is to point you to the one who can bring about that internal change. At best, it's earthly. At best, it's, it's of the earth and can't proceed beyond that. But this earthly testimony will point you, can point you, can direct you to a greater spiritual above reality. And that's what he knew his ministry was about. That's what he knew the law and the prophets was all about. He that cometh from heaven is above all, and what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth, and no man receives his testimony. And Jesus said that many times, and you'll not hear me. If another came in his own name, you would receive him, but I come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. He, listen to these words, this is verse 33. And this goes right back to the first chapter. He came to his own and his own received him not, but those that received him. He gave the power to become sons of God. Look at this. He that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. What does that mean? If he has received this one who's coming, is after me, who's greater than me, who's above all. If you do receive his testimony, then you are receiving the very seal of God himself, that God is true. You're receiving the seal that is true validation that God is true. That everything that I've said, everything the law and the prophets have said is true. And how is that received? By receiving the one who is the substance of that truth. For, when, for he whom God hath sent, he speaks the words of God. For God giveth not the spirit by measure unto him. Now, there's, there's so much to this. God gives not the Spirit by measure. What is that talking about? Well, you can go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And we've talked about this before. Where it says that the, the testimony, the first administration of things, 
the, the administration of condemnation, and he calls it many different things, had a glory. But now, in the light of the glory that excelleth, it is seen to have no glory at all. When you study that out, there is many word studies, many commentaries that would say the way it's worded is that it had a glory lent to it. Like it borrowed a glory from something. It didn't have a glory of its own. Any glory that it had was borrowed from a source that had glory itself. You see what I'm saying? It was lent. It's like lending money, borrowing money. It was lent a glory for a moment in time. It's like the moon and the sun, but it was lent a glory, meaning just like Jesus says, you saw Solomon with all of his glory, but I'm telling you that even the sparrows have a greater glory than him. Why? Because it is just as earthly as that. The greater than Solomon has come. And in that coming, he, the greater glory than that glory that just was lent to it, so that, that, and just look at how awesome that testimony was. And he's saying, listen, that glory, even the sparrow exceeds that. I exceed that beyond your imagination. There's the difference between a lent glory and the glory. So this is what he's looking at here. Uh, he had a measure. He does not. This one whom God has sent from above has not the spirit by measure. Meaning he's not just spiritual. He doesn't just give, speak spiritual words or point to spiritual things. He is the spirit himself. He's the spirit period. Not with measure. That's John. John had a spirit given in measure so that he had adequate ability to just testify of this one, to baptize with water, to, to point to this one and say, behold the Lamb of God. That's the difference, and, and that's what he's doing in these statements. He's basically declaring the true difference between the two. The testimony, what John represented in his office, and the substance of that testimony. One had a measure, and one was at without measure. You see the increase now and the decrease? Why the, just the lent glory is now not even glorious and decreases in the light of the exceeding glory that has come? That's the picture being painted here. Not John saying, I hope this process of elimination takes place real quick. I hope I'm humble enough. Maybe Jesus will increase more or I'll decrease more. Mm -mm. Him being present because who he is, the summation of the very intention of John's testimony is his decrease. For the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Again, that's what Jesus says to the Pharisees coming to me. I know the Father. Father's given me all things. It all belongs to me. Now, if you're going to have the relationship that's exclusive to me and the Father, this is all Matthew eleven twenty. 
4, 5, 6, and 7, <clears throat> come to me. Come to me. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. I'll give you rest. He that believeth on the Son. This is the whole point. This is the whole reason John existed. Look at this. This is the whole reason the increase of the one had to come and the decrease of the other came. Because he that believeth on this Son that is loved of his Father, the one sent from above, he has eternal life. But he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, and the wrath of God abideth on him. John understood the limitations of his ministry. He understood the limitation of his baptism. He understood that the law and the prophets that he represented could bring you to him, but it could not bring you to the fullness of him. Only he and his coming and his increase could do that. That's why Paul in his ministry, when he's facing the Judaizers, will declare how ludicrous it is to go to these former things, to the shadows, when the substance has arrived. It's the very thing John say. The increase of the one is the decrease of the other. The presence of the one is the elimination for the presence of the other is the, pre the, the need for the presence of the other is now gone. All he's done, negotiated the joining of the two intended parties and the groom comes and beckons his bride to come unto him. To be joined to him. I hope this has clarified some things for you. And hasn't uh, made you too mad. The purpose of this verse in this context is beautiful. There's no need to disrupt its placement. To take it out of its intended spot. No reason at all. So, appreciate you guys being with us uh, tonight. Uh, thank you so much. And uh, reach out to me or reach out to us. You can go to the podcast. There is actually a podcast where I deal with this. There's two actual uh, separate sessions. <clears throat> he must increase that I might decrease. There's part one and part two. And it's, it goes into this in much more detail than I'm able to now. I've split it up into two um, sessions. So that may be a place you can go and, and hear this in a little more detail. Um, it may help you a little more than this did. So you can go there. The Satisfied God podcast, you can just Google that and it'll take you to the, to the podcast. You can get that on YouTube or Podbean or Apple Podcasts or wherever. So uh, again, thank you guys for being here. Amen.